You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Well, welcome, all you wiretappers. Back here in the studio of Gangland Wire. This is your interminable host, Gary Jenkins. I think we say that just before it comes on. You know, I never really listened to the very start of it. <laughs> Off the podcast, I'll listen here as I edit sometimes or just pull it up and listen to it in different places. And I wonder what I said or what somebody else said. But anyhow, I'm carried on way too much. I want to get right to it. I've got Giovanni Rocco on there. Giovanni is a retired New Jersey copper who uh, worked undercover on the mob back east. Welcome, Giovanni. Thanks for having me, Gary. Have I got all that right so far? <laughs> Nailed it. You got it. Perfect. All right, right. Good. So first thing we're going to talk about is Giovanni's book, Giovanni's Ring, My Life Inside the Real Sopranos. I was looking at it on Amazon here, and he worked on these guys. He was right in there. It's kind of interesting how he got in. We were talking the other day. He didn't really start out to get really in undercover. And he and I are going to talk a little bit about the difference in police work when you're working on the mob. And he did something a little different than I did. What he did takes a lot more balls than what I did, I think. But go ahead, Giovanni. Tell us a little bit about your book. What's it going to cover? And who were the real Sopranos? Sure. Well, number one, Gary, I'll say it takes balls to do any other couple of work. So uh, <laughs> kudos to you. <laughs> but Giovanni's Ring, my life started the real Sopranos. It's a story about my life and how I started out as a street kid, how I grew up third generation, first responder, phone cop, and how I grew up in the street. It wasn't, I didn't intend to write a book about myself, but I was pushed to do it. My co-author, Schofield, he was the reason why I decided to do it. And I'm glad I did it because I wanted to bring light to the work of undercover work, bring light to it and to show people what we do and what we sacrifice out there. It's not an easy job. And men and women do it every single day. So I had a career in it. I did 26 years in law enforcement, and I started early off in my career doing it. Wow. So you were with a New Jersey agency. It was a city agency, wasn't it? I was. I was a city cop in New Jersey. That's when I came on a job. I started out in patrol. I did a little bit of time in patrol, and then I quickly went into my gold shield, became a detective, and started working narcotics and vice. From Vice, I was working organized crime guys back then. I was very familiar with them because the area in Hudson County was very populated with uh, organized crime figures back in the day. It was right on the waterfront, right outside of Manhattan. So it was a, a plethora of targets. And that's how I came up. And then early in my narcotics career, after I got my gold shield, I was asked to go to work. Now, what is the main city there? Is that Newark? Is that the biggest city right now? Newark is right there. Yeah, Newark's one of the big hubs. Jersey City was the biggest one closest to where we worked. That was a lot of work out of Jersey City, right outside of Manhattan. Yeah, because that's all just a whole bunch of different cities, right? In that yeah, area, it's, it's different just, jurisdictions. Yeah, it's combined. It's yeah. a dense area, densely populated. You got Bayonne, where I was born and raised and grew up. That's the old movie, The Waterfront. You know, that Marlon Brando movie that was based yeah. on that whole area there of the New York and New Jersey waterfront. And that's Bayonne. Bayonne was, when I was growing up, it literally had the waterfront. The, the military ocean terminal was still there and it was an active military base. And mob guys controlled everything going in and out of there. You know, they controlled oh, yeah. everything. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of action around a military base, <laughs> isn't well, there? <laughs> well, <laughs> lots, of need, lots of need for vice around a military base. And anytime yeah. you got large groups of working men, there's lots of options and lots of demand for different vice activities, mostly drinking and gambling and a little bit of prostitution. Sure. A lot of not so much prostitution where I was from. The neighborhood wouldn't allow that much stuff. But bookmaking, the traditional way that the guys used to do their rackets, it was all they did. It was nothing for guys 
John DiGilio was the guy who ran the cruise back then, the Genovese family. And he ran things. What John Gotti was later in life, John was, that's how he ran things back then. Interesting. Now, you guys, to paint a little bit of a picture for that, I was just going up through there. You know, you watch the opening scene of The Sopranos when Tony is driving in to work. Well, he's driving through what Giovanni's talking about. Is that not correct? That's it. Spot on. Pulaski Skyway is where he's going, the Jersey Turnpike, and that whole area is where he's driving through, yeah. Yeah, so that kind of paints a picture of what we're dealing with here and the area that Giovanni worked at. And it's got to be a pretty tough area around there. I mean, it's lots of guys. So now this was the main family in that particular area was kind of subset in the street gang terminology, you know, a subset of the overall gang. So this is like a subset or a set of the Genovese family. It's a subset of the Gambinos. They all oh, kind Gambinos. of work in concert together. Yeah. They, okay. But the De Cavacante family is the family that the book is based on and the family that I infiltrated. Although some people will argue the fact the Soprano series is based on the mafia in general, but the New Jersey mafia is known as the De Cavacante family. They are the longest standing Italian American mafia family. Well, yeah, that's what I remember that now. Is I know Genovese has some action down there, but the Cavacante family is the main one down there. I yeah. think maybe they're the one that Bureau had one of those before they had to have a wiretap affidavit and all that before they passed Title Three. They had one of those bugs in, uh, what was that dude's name? Sam the Plumber. And they got uh, just dynamite stuff out. Yeah, they yeah, couldn't Sam use it in court, yeah. but they got some dynamite stuff out of that, talking about they murders did. and yeah. all kinds of stuff. However we can get it, we used to do it. When I worked organized crime cases as a case agent, we used to bug the craziest things outside of labor rackets or there was yeah. a construction site. We would bug anything we could with a Title III. And gain as much intelligence as we can, but there's nothing like looking at it from the inside. Yeah. sat on many surveillances. I sat on many funerals and watched these guys and the mannerisms were all the same. It's very movie-esque, but to be on the inside, it's another perspective, that's for sure. Really, that's a good word for it, movie-esque. There are certain rituals that people participate in. That's one thing I always found fascinating and really attracted me to want to work on the mob is these mob guys, they have families and they have relatives and people die. You don't have to be a mob guy, just a mob guy's brother or uncle or somebody dies from the neighborhood and they all show up and they all like, you can tell by the way they treat certain people with certain respect and the way their body language and all that, you can kind of tell what's going on. And they always go to the weddings and the funerals and all that kind of thing. So it's uh, it was always one of the more interesting things about working the mob. It made life very easy, right, Gary? When we used to sit on surveillance at a funeral <laughs> yeah. and a Cadillac would pull up, you know, in the early <laughs> 90s when I was working vice. And I was a young kid. I wanted the sexiness. I wanted the foot pursuits and all that kind of crazy stuff. But looking yeah. back, I was blessed to be able to sit there on a funeral detail and watch this guy come out of the backseat of the car and the, not the driver, but the front seat passenger would get out and don his coat over him. And you know, okay, this is somebody of great significance. <laughs> yeah. This is somebody that traveled from New York to come to this funeral or pay his respect. And yeah. there's a great deal of respect in that world. Yeah. Great deal. Of you see a couple of guys walk up to somebody who is somebody and you, you may or may not know for sure who it is, but you see like one guy will approach him and maybe the other guy will just stay back. And he'll stand back just a kind of a respectful distance and never go right up into that conversation. And then maybe that first guy that approached that man will then invite the other man in. But those rituals are really interesting to watch. And you can see the whole body language change on a guy that is somebody calls him over. It's a feeling of acceptance. If you're just an enforcer or a leg breaker or somebody like that, you're a collector. And you're called over to meet somebody that's significant in their world. 
you went from, and that's what I used to do. Most of these guys know that. I worked intelligence, but intelligence, we just watch. I caught a lot of crap from other policemen because that's all you guys do is just watch. You don't ever do anything. You don't ever file any cases. You don't do anything. What do you do? And I didn't think we did anything, but we just watched. It takes a lot of patience to watch. And I remember when I first went down there, we had some older guys that just wanted to get back in the office and smoke and joke for the last hour and a half or so. And, and they'd already spent an hour and a half, first hour and a half in the morning out eating breakfast with each other and not doing anything. <laughs> and so I'd just stay out. I didn't want to go in there and tell the same old stories over again. And when you stay out and you just sit on a place and you stay there, you start seeing stuff. And you start making those connections, then maybe a month from now or six months from now are going to mean something. And it's hard. It takes a certain amount of patience to just sit and watch and it uh, imagination, too. It's like playing chess. It really is. It's like playing chess. Intelligence is the backbone. If you don't have the intelligence being fed to us as operatives, we don't know what we're walking into. You know, right. I could be walking into a situation blind. Thank God I had the intelligence that we had along my way. I myself didn't understand as a young cop investigator what the importance of intelligence was. I did a seizure when I was working for the DEA and it was a massive seizure in New Jersey that we had uh, seized in the port. And I took a couple of agents, DEA agents out to lunch in my old town because it was in that area of Bayonne. I said, I got a great Italian place to take you to, we'll go eat. And as I walk in this Italian place, there's two capos from the Genovese fence in there. One that I actually used to play in his backyard and another one that I knew from growing up. And I just thought it was really odd that they were together because the one was out on release. He was under trial. He was on trial for some violations and they released him and he wasn't supposed to be meeting with anybody from that world. And I did a little memo. All I did was type a memo to the intelligence guys and let them know, hey, I saw A and B together having yeah. lunch. And do you know that one report I did on intelligence on the violating that capo and putting him back in prison for the remainder of his sentence? So yeah. intelligence is huge, you know. Yeah, it, it can be. So now, Giovanni, how did you first start working undercover? How did that come about? Sometimes you'll take a guy who's unknown and then put an informant with him and then he'll introduce you in. But I don't think that, how, how did that work for you? I've done that numerous times early in my career. I started very, very young in my career doing undercover work. And I just kind of fell into it. I was asked by my chief. They had to infiltrate some guys. And my first long-term, and I say long-term, it was unheard of back then. It was a few months into some associates of a known biker gang, an outlaw motorcycle gang. And I did that and I did it. I messed up in the beginning, but the case came out well and we did a good thing at the end. And then your reputation builds. And then the DEA eventually offered me a position on their task force and I was working cases for them. And then here and there I would dabble in it, but I was always drawn to it as a young kid. He was a gold shield and he worked as a detective and just watching him do certain things. I always thought I want to be a detective. I want to be an investigator. But then when I was given the chance to work on the cover work, I felt it was my calling. Everything I learned in the street, and I wasn't a good kid when I was, you would think I was because I was a cop's kid, but I wasn't. I was a black sheep and you know, I was into a lot of trouble as a kid. Me too. And that all came back to help me. <laughs> so that all comes back to help you in the world. You, you read yeah. people easier when you're surviving in the street and you're messing around with the wrong people, the ticks and tells. You know, I was good at it. I was good at reading people and I was good at, ingratiating myself with people in deals, no matter what the culture was. Then I had the chance to do it for the FBI, and then they sent me for official training. And once that happened, my world just opened up big time. I started working in big, big time intelligence cases against other countries and things infiltrating us and us infiltrating them. And my eyes opened up big time to the point where I did a case and I actually infiltrated a branch of the Black Panthers as Giovanni Gatto. 
you know, as oh, really? the persona that I had. Yeah, and because everybody loves a good Italian gangster. I carried myself a certain way. There was some little things here and there before this case with uh, I write about in the book came to be. I was doing some other things along the way with some Italian mafia guys from the old world, from Italy that came over here. And then I was doing some stuff locally in New York and New Jersey. So, yeah. So give me a story out of your book that one of those early cases where you start getting in with somebody. When I first got in, a quick one that I explained, when I first, I made my bones with the Bureau and I became a certified undercover for the FBI. And one of my first cases, now I'm on a big stage. It's like playing ball, minor yeah. leagues as opposed to the major leagues. Now major leagues. And you get that little bit of nervousness. And my mentors asked me, the guys that had mentored me through the training program that we went through for Bureau. And it's a lot of pressure. I graduated the program that my guys that came before me, the heavy hitter on the covers for the FBI did before me. They invited me out to dinner. We were doing some couple of Dominican and Colombian drug dealers, and they were trafficking into the country. And we were buying multiple kilos. And it was just a survival. That's how really the Giovanni Gatto persona came to be. I was sitting there eating dinner. I stayed in my lane. I was very quiet. And everybody else did the job that I was with. And Pino, the guy I talk about in the book, he was my mentor, and he invited me there. And I sat there quiet. And it was almost as if he had to nudge me to say something. And I just didn't feel like I needed to interject. And then finally, believe it or not, these drug dealers, these traffickers, they were big-time baseball players. Like, they enjoyed baseball back in their old countries. Yeah. They're talking about that. And then one guy says, hockey. I'm a hockey player. Hockey player. How do you get to play hockey? We laughed. We had a couple of jokes. And I'm sitting there. And he says, yeah, I'd love to play. But then I broke my femur. And I couldn't play hockey anymore. So that was my intro. And I go, that's the hardest bone in the body to break. And that's the first thing I said the whole conversation at dinner that night. So Pino had looked over at me. He goes, what'd you say? What do you mean? It's the first. What do you mean it's the hardest bone? Yeah, it's the hardest bone in the body to break. And he looks at me. He goes, well, how do you know that, Giovanni? Like, all of a sudden, you went to medical school? <laughs> I said, no, boss. I said, I know it's the hardest bone in the body to break because I get tired from beating somebody with a baseball bat so many times at a leg. And the legs are the hardest thing to break with a baseball bat. If somebody owes you money. That's what I do. And that's where my persona was born. And these guys, you realize very quickly that these stone cold killers and one of them had done a shooting in a meeting just prior to us meeting that night. And these guys are looking at me like I'm a stone cold killer, you know, <laughs> and they were fearful. So you got to ride that fine line. You can't intimidate these guys. You got to let them be the, the bad guys. That's where my persona was born for Giovanni Gatto. Yeah, that's interesting about just setting back. I know Joe Pistone talks about that. In his book, he talked about going into this one joint and he just sat there and didn't say a word. And so finally, the you know, the bartender will kind of engage him and people just, they, they can't stand the silence. So they're going to ask you something. And so he started engaging him a little bit. Finally, it came out and he just slowly but surely never tried to approach anybody. We had a similar deal here in Kansas City where the couple of guys are running a restaurant FBI just run a restaurant and they were told, do not engage anybody, just run your restaurant. And that's interesting. I would imagine that undercover school, I know when Joe Pistone first went undercover, they didn't have that. And then I think after he came out, he was part of the people that established the first undercover school. And then from then on, people started going to undercover school. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's true. Yeah, he had, I guess he started it. It took on a life of its own from there. And not an easy school. It's a very difficult thing to go through. It's a very difficult thing to make it to the end. You got to have the stamina. That's for sure. Really? Besides classroom work and just instruction, did they then have practical exercises? 
where yeah, you have yeah, actors and, they, and then they throw you into something that looked just like a bar or looked like a restaurant or some public yeah. place and just throw you in and see how you did. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. And you you felt like you were right in it. So they did a good job. Huh, interesting. So you work drugs. What about the mob guys? Tell me about kind of trying to fit in with some mob guys. Now you you got the right accent. You were actually are from the general area where you worked and we were talking before in Kansas City, we never tried to put any local person in undercover because it's too small. And especially somebody that was Italian and grew up in the neighborhood, there's no way that that would ever work. How did you, you know, get in with the mob guys who were from the neighborhood and may know people that, you know, immediately they're going to find out, well, where'd you go to school at? And who do we know? Is there anybody that we both know? Yeah, I was challenged on that in some time into the case where, where'd you come from? You walk like us, you talk like us, you move like us, but I don't remember you ever being around. And where I grew up, my neighborhood where I grew up was a stone's throw from where their neighborhood was, where their home base was. And their home base, just to set the stage for you, the Sopranos, and you had asked about it earlier, the Sopranos had a meat market. You know, the Sopranos had social clubs. They had a social club. It was very mirrored to what that whole scene was in The Sopranos. So much so that their home base was when The Sopranos, The Satrials, The Meat Market. Well, these guys had a meat market in a deli in Elizabeth, New Jersey, and that's where they were based out of. And it was very close to where I was. It wasn't my intention to infiltrate the mafia. We didn't target it. it just kind of morphed and, and created a life of its own. I was actually asked to go down to Atlantic City for a cocaine purchase drug deal. And I went down there as bona fides, just another guy doing a deal with some kids and wanted me to be there. And of course, these guys ran late, like drug dealers do. You can't set a watch to them. And I was genuinely mad. And you had talked about it earlier, just stay in your lane and be quiet. And I was genuinely mad that these guys were giving us the runaround. I would have walked away, but this guy chose to stay and wait. And they eventually showed up. And just in my whole persona gave them the impression that I was somebody. And I was genuinely mad. I wouldn't let them eat. The intention was to have dinner. I shoved my pie a la mode in front of them and said, hey, you want to eat? You want to keep me sitting here? Now you eat this. And because of the way I moved, that kind of, they bit. And they thought that we were some gangsters. They created a story in their mind that we were actually Bruno Scarfo guys from Philly, from Philadelphia with the crime family. It wasn't the case, but they created this in their brains. So this drug case went on and on and I continued to buy drugs from them. And then along the way, they told a friend about me. Another guy started talking about me. They created a buzz. And then so-and-so wants to meet me. This guy wants to meet. We're doing a little bit of swag, the stuff that falls off the back of trucks, some counterfeit goods. We're trading back and forth. And then it just, we went along. Eventually, one of the guys I was dealing with wanted to introduce me to his Uncle Charlie. And that wound up, he eventually wound up being my capo. But he took me under his wing. And then he brought me into the family. Opened my eyes to it. Taught me the way. I didn't claim to know the way. I didn't claim to be a gangster. I let him educate me along the way. And yeah. it, was, it was very fast. It happened very quick. And then eventually there was some turmoil inside the family. One of the guys I was dealing with early on, he decided that he wanted to stake a claim to me. And he wanted maybe to bring me into his crew. And I would answer him as a associate. He lost that. Charlie, the capo, Charlie Stengel, he eventually turned around and said, well, I'm sticking my claim into him. He's going to be mine. And that caused a sit down in the family. They had to bring their case to the administration. And eventually Charlie won it and it didn't sit well with Luigi. And then eventually the family got into a little bit of a struggle because the boss was passing away and or he was getting older up there in age. He was 90 by then. And they were going to pass the torch to a new administration. And just the infighting, they decided that they want to whack out a couple of guys. And then they tasked me to do it. They asked me to yeah. kill them. 
Now, who was that boss? At the time, it was John Riggy was boss. Some argue that he was the person that Tony Soprano's character is based on. Okay. Very similar lifestyle, very similar control of what the Sopranos controlled in the show and strong similarities. John Riggy was very respected in all the families across the country. He controlled a lot of the union. He controlled a lot of the ports. So much so that the other five families, the major families, the Gambinos, the Genovese, the Lucchese's, they would all come to him and do work with him and ask him for jobs. And he would negotiate. You know. He had no problem at all ordering murders. He himself did some time for racketeering and murder. He was just recently released when the case had started. And he was up there in age and he had gotten his release and he was paroled. And then he decided, I guess, to tap out of that life. Hmm. Handling swag, did you do the old ploy of like uh, Joe Pistone did? They would buy a bunch of jewelry and then he would front it off like he was dealing in stolen jewelry. Did you do anything like that? We did that I didn't, several times here. I didn't do jewelry. You dealt in whatever you had, whatever you can come across. If it was sneakers, if it was cigarettes, if it could be art, whatever you can make money on, these guys would make money on. And whatever you had, cigarettes are a big thing in that world. So, you know, I was able to get my hands on cigarettes or if I needed something, I would trade. If I needed dope, I would trade my cigarettes or my sneakers for dope, and they would yeah. do the same with them. And <laughs> deal in the street, but I would trade other things. And then eventually, they would hijack a truck, or they would call me up, or I would make it look like I hijacked something. I would call them yeah. up and sell it. And because of that, my guy, my capital, he would put me in with other families. So at the end of the case, even though I was trading the Decavacante family, he would put me into some of the other five families. So I think for the other five families I was doing business with in some way, shape, or form, carrying messages because at the end, I was able to speak on my capo's behalf. Mm. And then eventually had me running the crew. He was supervising me, not that I was made guy, but I was doing the work of a made guy. Yeah. He must have really taken a liking to you and saw some potential in you. Yeah, he did. He had two sons, but I think he looked at me as the son he always wanted to have. Yeah. And he can groom me. I was smart enough. I played stupid, but I, I was smart enough where I wanted to be educated by him, listened, and I stayed in my lane. There was some major slip-ups along the way, whether it was me or the team that was covering me, and that had put me into some dangerous situations. But I never claimed to be a gangster. I let him groom me. In. And yeah. because of that, even though he was in Las Vegas and I lived in New York for a while, and then I would fly out there all the time and see him and spend time, we had that father-son relationship. That's what it actually grew into. Committing crimes, but we were also building relationships. Dang, he was living in Vegas, but running his family back in New Jersey. Yeah, he was part of the administration. He was a capo in it. He was answering, you know, he had direct contact to the underboss and the boss to the point where when he decided to go on record with the family with me, he brought me into New Jersey into the meat market, Delhi. And he went out, he actually went on record, made it official that not that I'm a made guy again, but he's going to be with us and he's representing me. He speaks for me now. I actually, after that meeting, I was given a number to the underboss and was told, listen, anything you need, you call me directly. Anything you have going on, you report to me if you can't get a hold of Charlie. Yeah, that's pretty good. You're able to, like any kind of a tiered police department or agency or business that has manager or general manager or supervisor, you're not supposed to go over the guy that's right above you, but then, <laughs> except for certain people that get permission to do that. So that you, right. you were doing well. Yeah, I did well on the job, but the problem was when I was doing all that great work, the boss at home in my real life, my wife and my kids, they suffered because yeah, I kind of, yeah. you know, that's where it was mismanaged. It just consumed me. After a while, this was just shy of three years in this family I spent. And from beginning to end, it did. It took a severe toll on my family and my wife and the kids. To this day, we still suffer because of it. 
Oh, yeah, that's for sure. I tell you that if you care and you're really trying to do that extra good job, you get so caught up in all that and you carry. Oh, I remember thinking after I got away from even what I did, because we did a lot of hanging out in bars, a ton of bar to bar time, because that's where you see people coming and going. That's where you try to figure out who people are. Maybe you can even start talking, maybe make a friend of the bartender, the barmaid, and then eventually start debriefing them a little bit they don't really know they're telling you something but they are and spend all that time and and it's 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 a violent world that you're operating in so i remember i'm thinking later on i kind of brought that tinge of violence home with me it's always just kind of in there with me all the time would not want to bid my wife or my kids and of course we ended up splitting up before it was all done but you bring that kind of edge of violence because you're living in that violent world all the time it's a it's trauma right yeah. No matter what way you look at it, it's trauma. And cops in general go through trauma on a daily basis. Some of the hardest days are a patrolman. You know, you don't know what to expect and you're so yeah. amped up by the end of the day. Just being a simple simple, but the act of being a patrolman and not knowing where your next call is, you're always on that high energy alert and you're riding that razor's edge. You go home and you take that home. You have so much cortisol going through your body and pumping through. It doesn't disperse for 24 hours, I think, the matter the doctors say, but you bring that home and that trauma, there is a transference of trauma. Because like you yeah. had described, Gary, what's with you? How come you're not talking? You know, you haven't seen us in three days. And you start barking, you know, leave me alone. Yeah. You don't understand. Yeah. You don't understand. Yeah. And my wife was a cop. My wife was a detective. You would think she, but not. Nah, you don't understand. You don't get it. I'm not going to sit here and talk to you. Just let me leave me alone. Let me watch TV. Let me go to bed. You know, yeah. like we did, like anybody, homicide investigators do the same thing. And it just builds up. And here we are thinking, well, I'm earning my paycheck. I'm doing my job. I'm a good cop. I'm a great investigator. So you know what? Be happy. I'm providing for you guys. I'm providing for my wife. I'm giving my kids a good life. Leave me alone. Let me be me. But really, we're doing more damage than we're doing good. And then eventually I did. I describe it in the book as I would never, ever invite a guy like Giovanni Gatto to my house. If I had a barbecue, and I knew gangsters growing up. This guy, Giovanni, he was a piece of garbage. I wouldn't let yeah. him around my kids. I wouldn't let him around my wife. But by the end of this case, somehow, some way, when I was at work, this guy, I left my door open and he got in. That's the way I described it to people. This piece of garbage was with my kids. And I saw it at the end. Everything was done. And I would sit there and watch my little guys. They were trying to be Giovanni Gatto. They weren't trying yeah. to be Giovanni Rocco. Mm-hmm. They were imitating me. That's the bad part. That's when you see the transference of trauma. That's when that occurs. Really? So, and that's where the healing yeah. begins. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you guys out there, uh, Giovanni's got, he's actually now doing work in this area of uh, working with ex-cops or cops that maybe feel like they need a little help. Because believe me, when when you're a cop, it's a pretty macho world and you don't just run around and ask anybody for help. <laughs> you, you don't reveal a whole lot of yourself to just anybody. And you really don't reveal much of that, any of that side of yourself to anybody at work because they'll be all over you. Other cops sense some kind of weakness. It ain't pretty. It ain't pretty at work. Now, you get them away by themselves, it's a little bit better. He's doing a lot of work. So tell us a little bit about that work that you're doing. And I understand that because I know all you guys know that I don't drink anymore. And I used to drink a lot and got 30 years of recovery and just made all the difference in the world. I I wish I could go back and do it all over again sober, but I can't do Mm -hmm. it all over again sober. I was much smarter, quicker, and faster, and hipper, and could have done a much better job. But so, Giovanni, tell us about the work that you're doing now. Well, I fell into it, Gary. I mean, congratulations for having 30 years of sobriety. That's a tremendous feat. I kind of fell into it after my law enforcement career came to an end and I was relocated. I stayed in touch with some police psychologists along the way. And 
I was still training for the FBI and I was still doing speaking engagements for first responders and cops at conferences. One of them in particular had come to me and he had asked me to do some speaking on the psychological stressors of being undercover. I did a couple of presentations with him and then I started doing reintegration presentations for him and then just realizing, wow, my words mean something. And then I started talking to different people and then he had kind of hooked me up with some people in the industry and the recovery fields and mental health and behavioral health for first responders. And when I got out there, I realized there's really no place in particular our guys and girls can go. Like there's no place you have military has great programs with the vets and have differences lined up. There's nowhere particular for law enforcement to go because with us, we're always fearful. What I heard from a lot of guys is how am I going to go away for 30 days and sit in a recovery place with some 23 year old fentanyl addict? Who's going to listen to me? I got to tell this guy I'm a cop. Yeah, And there's a lot of that. So it kind of forced us to get into developing programs throughout the country. And I want to get behind it and let guys know to share your experiences. Because we always say we have each other's back. I got your back. I got your back. Yeah. But yeah, when no, I say but... to you, I think I got some problems at home. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait, Gary. <laughs> whoa, whoa, I don't want to hear that. You know, wait a minute. You're crossing the line here. And we yeah. call guys nowadays, they call it car to car therapy. And you think about it. And I share, what do you do, right? We pulled up to each other's car windows. Yeah. And we just... We shot it for hours. We just talked and talked and talked. And then you dumped your stuff on me. We never realized we were doing car-to-car therapy. But when it came time to ask for help, you were blackballed. Because I bet you, you were raised the same way I was. The first homicide scene I investigated, I was told, all right, kid, here's how we do it. We go to New York. We drink all night. That's what I was taught. I mean, I was taught by that by the generations before me. We drink all night. Bars don't close for cops, right? We keep bars open. And then they close, we reopen in the morning, we go for mugs and eggs. That could create a, an environment. And again, the wives suffer at home, the kids suffer at home, and here we are thinking we're doing the right thing. So that's where I'm focused now, just trying to help as many as I can and getting the word out there. It's not about being a tough guy, right? Having that yeah. hard exterior, it's, it's not about that. You know, you got to be there for your family. I describe it to a lot of people. We all owe it to our wives and our families, our mothers and fathers to be the same person. We were the best candidates for this job. We had background checks done on us, psychological tests done on us. We were the best of the best, the cream of the crop to get this job. So when we stood there and we, we held that Bible and took the oath to do this job, we owe it to our family to be that same man, that same woman at the end of 25 years. That's who they want. They don't want some hardened, tough guy or, yeah. or girl that thinks she's a you know, super girl, a super woman. They want the person they married. They want the person at the beginning of the career, that candidate. And we owe it to them to be that person. So whatever I could do to share my experiences. And that's part of the reason why it pushed me to write this book too. Be very raw and share my experiences. All right. Giovanni, that sounds like a really interesting book. I'm going to have to get me a copy of it. I didn't take time to do that. I kind of talked to you the other day and I said, let's just go ahead and do this. I'm just going to let you tell me about it anyhow, but you've really piqued my interest now for sure. And I'm going to do that. I'd be happy to send you one and anybody else, they can get Barnes & Noble or any of the major carriers. Amazon has it. Amazon's carrying it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, anyway. I'll get a Kindle. I've kind of broken down where I'm, <laughs> I mainly do Kindles now is what I'm going to do. <laughs> right. and, uh, I've already got a whole bookcase behind me. I've already got a whole bookcase, and that's only about half of what I've got. And those are just like organized crime books. A lot of them anymore, I don't read them like I used to for fun. I read them to research a family or a story that I want to get into here. So it's, it's kind well, of I doing this podcast. 
Yeah, I do. I will. This podcast kind of taking the fun out of reading true crime for me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well. Well, Giovanni, I really appreciate you coming on the show. And anything I could ever do for you, don't hesitate to give me a shout here in Kansas City. Same thing here, Gary. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity and I wish you all the best. All right. Talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Well, folks, that ends another Gangland Wire episode. Just want to thank you all for listening and for all your nice Apple podcasts and other podcast app reviews and the nice comments you make on my YouTube page and on my Facebook and questions you ask on my Facebook pages. Now, as most of you all know, I upload my Zoom interviews on YouTube so you can see what my guests look like in real life. And also put most of those on my Gangland Wire podcast Facebook group. And and in regards to those Facebook groups, I've got two. One is the Facebook page, Gangland Wire Facebook page, and the other was my podcast group. And the group is smaller, and I monitor that pretty closely. So get on that. I want to thank Ken Couture and several others for keeping fresh content on my Facebook page. If you want more mob information you can shake a stick at, just go to the Gangland Wire podcast Facebook group. And remember, if you support the podcast with donations, you'll get an invite to my monthly live Zoom calls where we'll share stories, answer questions, and sometimes have guest speakers. And in general, we have a good time. A lot of guys will be sitting back in their den with a cigar and, and a drink. And, and uh, we just have a really good time on those monthly Zoom calls. The main method of making a donation is on my website donate page. You can use a credit card or use PayPal. But you can also buy me a cup of coffee or shot in the beer with your Venmo app or make any donation that you want to make. If you do it on Venmo, make sure you get me an email if you want to be on my Zoom call. I ask for donations to help do my next documentary, and a lot of you guys really responded big time. And I've been able to pay people, and it's going to have a little higher production values than what I've had before. I'm getting really close to completing it. It's about Kansas City organized crime and politics. I have a title, finally. It's Boat Fraud Here Again, Politics and the Mob. And don't forget about my previous documentaries, Gangland Wire, Skimming from Las Vegas, and Brothers Against Brothers, The Savella Spiro War. Both of those can be purchased or rented on Amazon. Now, finally, the last thing I'm selling, and I'll leave you all alone, is my book, Leaving Vegas, the true story of how FBI wiretaps ended mob domination of Las Vegas casinos. Now, that title is a mouthful. Now, if you're going to get that book, you're going to find that I used a lot of the actual wiretap transcripts from the skimming investigation. And if you get the Kindle version, I got the audios from those wiretaps. And you just click on a link and you'll go to that other website and it will allow you to listen to all those wiretaps. I think that's kind of unusual. So go to Amazon and get that book and get it in the Kindle version. And if you don't have a Kindle, Amazon has free Kindle software for your tablet or your phone. Now I'm going to let you guys go, but first I want to say that Gangland Wire supports the Veterans Administration. Their programs that help veterans out with PTSD. You can get help with their hotline, 800-873-8255, and then push one. Or you can go to their website, www.ptsd.va.gov. Thanks a lot for listening, and I must credit all of our music to our good friend and Frank Costello expert, Casey McBride from Portland, Oregon. Check out Casey's Frank Costello Facebook page, Uncle Frank's Place. Thanks, Casey.